Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Friday, January the 15th. Coming up, an Ontario MPP kicked out of the PC caucus after his letter that claims lockdowns are deadlier than COVID. Plus, doctors conducting dry runs to decide who gets critical care as our ICUs are stretched to the limit. And British Columbia looking at a travel ban. Is it legal to deny entry to fellow Canadians? All of that coming up right now. Now, in a letter issued by his office this morning, Ford said that, quote, effective immediately that York Center MPP Roman Babber will no longer be sitting as a member of the caucus, and he will also not be permitted to seek re-election as a PC member. Now, the premier went on to say that Mr. Babber's comments are irresponsible, and by spreading misinformation, he is undermining the tireless efforts of our frontline healthcare workers at this critical time. He is putting people at risk, and I will not jeopardize a single life by ignoring public health advice. Now, Babber made a uh, letter public that he had sent to Ford saying that, quote, the lockdown is deadlier than COVID. Mr. Babber joined Alan Carter right here on Global News Radio. Here's what he had to say. I wanted to offer a perspective that I hear from a lot of constituents and is supported by the data. And that is that the lockdown is deadlier than COVID. The lockdowns don't work. Most of the GTA has been in lockdown since Thanksgiving, but the lockdown may be actually causing much more harm than good. Suicides, overdoses, bankruptcies, divorces, and it also takes an immense mental health toll on our children. So it's important that we have a fair conversation not just about the risk of the virus, but also the health, mental health, and the social and economic effects of the lockdown. All right, so Mr. Babber has been kicked out of caucus, and the question now seems to be, was it for, as the uh, Premier uh, accuses him of, Ms. Trues, or was it simply because he disagreed with his boss? We're going to ask various experts about some of the claims made in that letter by Mr. Babber. Coming up, we'll talk with our medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchetz, about the situation in Ontario hospitals and ICUs. Are they truly on the brink of being overrun? We will also talk to a mental health expert on the effect that the pandemic and the stay-at-home order is having on mental health and suicide rates, also mentioned in the letter. But first, let's deal with the issue of long-term care, where Mr. Babber says in his letter, that the vaccination of LTC residents in hot zones by January 21st should end the lockdown. Dr. Nahid Dasani is a palliative care physician, and he joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Dasani, good afternoon. I appreciate you coming on with us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. First off, uh, I wanted to get your take on Mr. Babber's claims that once long-term care residents in hot zones are vaccinated, that the stay-at-home order, the lockdown, uh, should end. You know, I, I, I do want to, you know, outright say that there's a lot of misinformation that we're seeing politicians putting out there. And, and the misinformation that is, that is in this letter is highly concerning and is not backed up by data and is not backed up by evidence. Um, and, you know, um, politics is politics, but evidence and research are another thing. And so, you know, when you talk about um, the vaccinations happening in long-term care, albeit uh, I, I too hope and wish that they happen, you know, by the 21st, and I, I wish they even happened earlier. Um, that doesn't mean that um, safety has been, you know, conferred over to this population. That doesn't mean that the lockdown can end right away. 
Um, first of all, there's a second dose <laughs> that has to happen um, shortly after that and a few weeks later. Um, and um, it, it doesn't quite work that way, that when a person gets a vaccine, that the entire community's uh, health is, is, is safe during a pandemic. So we have to be cautious about these things. It's not that simple. All right. Yeah. Big news this afternoon that all residents in Toronto long-term care homes have been vaccinated, we understand. But to your point, there's still a long way to go when it comes to the entire province and ensuring the safety of what is our most vulnerable. Totally. I mean, it's it's the three-week um, gap between doses. It's the fact that immunity is not fully con, uh, conferred to an, onto a person after the first dose. And it's it's also the fact that um, just because you get that second vaccine, it doesn't mean that the immunity is provided right away. So you're talking about weeks and weeks and going into into months as well. So I, I, I just want to, you know, we talk a lot about doom and gloom on, on shows like this sometimes, especially in the pandemic. I'm really happy that people have been vaccinated. That's That's a win. That's like a light at the end of the tunnel. We need to celebrate that. Yeah, absolutely. But we have to be real as well. And we have to obviously know what we're uh, dealing with. And you're absolutely right about it uh, taking a while for the vaccine to take effect. Those second doses. And as well, uh, it's just not only the the hot zones. Yeah, those hot spots might be vaccinated in long-term care centers in Toronto, Peel, and elsewhere. But, you know, we've got an entire province to worry about. And if we start lifting, you know, lockdowns and stay-at-home orders, then all of a sudden, isn't there a fear or a risk that everybody uh, gets a little too complacent? For sure, we get too complacent um, and we put all this work um, and it's all for naught in the end. Um, long-term care is definitely a place where people have been hit hard and so I guess that's why we start this conversation here about that today. But what about other vulnerable populations in our communities? People experiencing homelessness, a significant proportion of Ontarians and Canadians um, experience precarious housing and have suffered quite a bit during COVID. They're 20 times more likely to be hospitalized, 10 times more likely to be in you and five times more likely to die, yet we don't have a fully structured understanding of how they'll be vaccinated um, as well. And that's and I, I'm encouraged to hear in Quebec, they're starting to vaccinate people who are experiencing homelessness and in Ontario today as well. But that's an example of another high-risk group outside of long-term care, where if we don't do this together, if we're not truly, you know, Team Ontario, um, we are all going to suffer. Joined in the line by Dr. Nahid Dasani, who's a palliative care physician, talking about some of the uh, claims made in this uh, letter uh, by uh, Roman Baber that has, of course, gone viral and is all the talk uh, here this afternoon. We're concentrating on some of the comments regarding a long-term care. And uh, Mr. Baber, Dr. Dasani, says in his letter that it's time to end the spread of fear and panic, calling it unjustified. And I'm wondering, is the fear regarding long-term care homes, both for residents and their families, and also, of course, for the support workers inside there, uh, is that fear unjustified? No, I really would ask this politician and others to look in the eyes of a caregiver who has lost their loved one due to COVID-19, to look in the eyes of family members of our frontline workers and recent um, PSWs and nurses who have died of COVID-19 in our long-term care system. This is very much justified. And that's, you know, coming from an emotional perspective, just as someone who's, you know, dealt with myself a lot, a lot of, with a lot of loss and suffering in this pandemic, but not to mention the data that 40 percent of long-term care facilities are an outbreak. I mean, I know the, the, the numbers don't back up the claim. The emotions don't back up that claim. And I think every Ontarian should be listening. All right. We're all concerned about our most vulnerable in long-term care. And you just mentioned that 40 percent number. I mean, we've all looked on with alarm and I think sadness, obviously, to the rising numbers and deaths once again that we're seeing in long-term care. 
Do you believe that uh, now with the vaccine uh, here that we're on a path to hopefully reversing these numbers and finally giving residents the protection that they deserve? You know, there always has to be hope and optimism. And at the beginning of the discussion, I talked about vaccination being being a hope that we can all strive to, a light at the end of the tunnel. But I would be so um, off base today if I didn't say that things are very dire. 100 people died of COVID in the last 24 hours. Um, and our hospitals um, have gotten, you know, messaging from government to start to enact triage protocols in our intensive care units. That means that care is going is about to be rationed based on the ability of someone to survive. And while we talked about that in the first wave, it didn't really happen fully in the first wave. We're talking about it in the second wave, and it's very likely it will happen in the second wave. And I think through all the noise, I hope Ontarians are hearing what we're actually dealing with. Yes, vaccines are exciting, but our hospitals are going to be on, are on surge, are decreasing their capacity, and about to ration care. That's very concerning. All right. Just finally, what would your message be, uh, doctor, to those that are sympathetic to the letter that uh, Mr. Baber put out here, uh, that they believe that the stay-at-home order and the lockdown is an overreach? I understand that, you know, stay-at-home orders and lockdowns are not fun. I understand that people's lives have been dramatically impacted. Um, but what we need, to, you know, this is not fun for anybody. It's not fun for you. It's not fun for me. But what we need to understand is that when it comes to a pandemic where, um, you know, our, our survival is, is collectively interconnected, there are great sacrifices that subseg- some segments of society have to make for others. And that's if we believe in justice and if we believe in human rights. And so a stay-at-home order and a lockdown are not fun. Evidence does support that these these kinds of measures will work. I encourage people who are worried about that to actually start advocating for some of the policies that would get us through this pandemic that we're not addressing here in Ontario, like paid sick leave and workplace protections to support our essential workers. Um, You know, start advocating for those kinds of policies, because the quicker we get a policy like paid sick leave and workplace protections in, the quicker we'll get through this pandemic. So channel your energy there, and that will help us get through this pandemic. All right. Dr. Dasani, I really appreciate the time with us on this Friday. Thanks so much. Thank you. I always appreciate you. Take care. Thank you. Dr. Nahid Dasani is a palliative care physician. All right. Here's a bit of good news. COVID numbers, they're down a bit today, just under 3,000, 2,998, but certainly still of concern, not only for us here in the province, in Ontario, but for other provinces as well, apparently. We've got news that uh, B.C., their premier, John Horgan, says that his government is seeking legal advice on limiting travel to his province. Joseph Newberger, 640 Toronto's legal expert, he joins us now for more on this here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Joe, good afternoon. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, Jeff. All right. As a matter of law, of constitutional law, can a province, can they refuse entry to a Canadian citizen? Not really. Um, Everybody has the right of mobility within the country uh, where you are a citizen, and um, you have a constitutional right to be able to move within your country. Um, There are circumstances where, and they they tried this in the first one, where the Atlantic provinces were trying to restrict uh, travel. But when it comes down to your constitutional right and your mobility rights, to try and trump that uh, by provincial legislation in my opinion, is illegal. 
All right, we are obviously in extraordinary times, extraordinary circumstances here in the midst of the second wave of this uh, pandemic. So could BC argue that? I mean, is there any room there? Are there any special circumstances that they could ask for special consideration? They could try. The only way I was imagining that they could do this is if the federal government declared a national emergency and therefore enacted uh, legislation federally, and under that legislation made travel restrictions, a health directive across Canada. And one could argue that even though it would be a breach of the constitutional right, because of the um, harm of the pandemic, it would override um, the constitutional right. That's the only way I could think that they could get through it, much like when you put in martial law and have a lockdown like in Quebec, you know, way back when the crisis with the FLQ existed. So you have to go to an extreme The provincial government to restrict its own boundary, in my respectful submission, is not really a provincial jurisdictional issue. It's more of a federal issue. Um, But they can try, and and that will have to apply to people driving there. It'll have to apply to people flying. And uh, I think it's something that will get battled out in the courts if somebody wants to challenge it. Well, I was going to ask you that. This does seem more of a federal issue. And when the province says that they're seeking legal advice, do we know exactly who they're talking to, their own lawyers, provincial lawyers, uh, federal lawyers, federal government, uh, the Supreme Court? Yeah, so they, they would seek advice from their own counsel. So they have each province has their own uh, attorney general. And so within the province, they could go to their attorney general and, of course, the lawyers who work within uh, that department seek their preliminary advice on what they say. They could ask guidance as well from the Department of uh, Justice, or what it's called now, um, and uh, or the Ministry of Justice, which is the federal, and seek advice from them as well, which would be a very good idea, because you want to make not only provincial consultations, but federal consultations. And then in addition, you probably would want to speak with your, uh, your, your fellow premiers to get their positions on it, because you don't want to create a quagmire of conflicting legal opinions. You want to try and have some sort of a, a coherent plan which is what we've seen to be a problem in Canada and other jurisdictions around the world where you don't really have a federally directed policy. So is this a bit of a non-starter, do you think? Because obviously the vaccine uh, has arrived, albeit in limited quantities. We're looking at mass vaccinations. It sounds like sometime April, May. And as you well know, Joe, the wheels of justice, they grind, uh, you know, pretty slowly at the best of times. I mean, is this something that could really get to figured out by the time uh, the vaccine is uh, really taking effect and hopefully these numbers are moving in the right direction instead of the wrong one in provinces like ours? Excellent point. You know, no, it, it can't be sorted out in that time. I mean, I think the best that they can do is what was done before. If you travel into the province and they're able to identify, you have to quarantine because you can have your own provincial legislation with respect to quarantine and then enforce that. And that's the only way to go. Um, And thank God we have the vaccine being rolled out. But I think people across the country are now becoming even more concerned about further lockdowns, further restrictions, really hampering on our mobility rights when we need to be finding a way to more creatively open ourselves up. And, And yes, we have to diminish the numbers, but we also have to keep in mind what needs to be some level of normalcy with our own lives. 
And just uh, finally, do you think that that is the best uh, route forward, the best path forward, instead of uh, looking at this uh, legally, B.C., they should continue to do what they've done in most other provinces, which is uh, get the message out discouraging travel, interprovincial travel, until uh, the time is right? Albeit that might be a little tough because a lot of governments, as you well know, they've lost uh, faith amongst uh, you know the electorate and the public yeah. because uh, a lot of their own members have traveled not only interprovincially but internationally during the second wave. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just a number of of government officials, you know, our own former finance minister, you've got CEOs of hospitals doing this. I mean, that is just gobsmacking. It's unbelievable, the the lack of judgment. So absolutely, you know, the, the people of each province have very good right to be very skeptical about what they get. That doesn't mean they can't try and rehabilitate themselves, the government, and, and try and keep the messaging. And I still think they're doing a good job. And, and Canadians as a whole understand the dilemma, but we still need to find balance in everything, even with the risk that's out there. You bet. Joe, appreciate the time as always. Have a happy and safe weekend. Thank you. You too, Jeff. Take care and be well. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, 640 Toronto's legal expert. And let's get back to the breaking news of the afternoon. Roman Baber kicked out of the PC caucus by Premier Ford this morning after his letter entitled The Lockdown is Deadlier Than COVID. Joining us now on the line is psychologist Dr. Taslim Alani Virgi joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right. In his letter to the Premier, Mr. Baber says that according to CMHA, the Canadian Medical Health Association, suicides are up four times more than normal overall, by which I assume he means pre-COVID. Uh, give us your first-hand experience in your account, if you can. Now, what has the toll of the, of the pandemic been on mental health? Yeah, so, you know, I what we do know is that for those who already were struggling with their mental health pre-COVID, that uh, the pandemic has been harder, harder on them. And so we've seen uh, those who are already struggling, struggling, struggling more severely, those who were you know, just getting by are probably also struggling with their mental health. We see younger people, so those under the age of 18 and those from um, groups that experience marginalization, um, Indigenous folks, uh, folks from the 2S LGBTQ plus communities um, are also being harder hit in terms of their mental health. All right, Mr. Baber says that the lockdown is deadlier than COVID. That was the title of his uh, letter. And he does, again, uh, cite some suicide statistics and uh, mental health do you believe that the lockdown, this recent stay-at-home order, is it adversely affecting some people's mental health? Is it uh, making what is a bad situation even worse? I mean, no, no one wants to be at home, right, Jeff? It's, that's just the reality of the situation. The lockdown is unfortunate, and it, most of us were hoping that things would be better by this time of the year, and they're not. So is the is the lockdown doing good for anyone's mental health? No, probably not. But does that mean that we're seeing um, an increase in suicides? I don't think that the data at this point shows that. And we also don't have the statistics to tell us whether the lockdown is the thing that's contributing to the poor mental health outcomes um, or whether it's COVID in general, which we know is um, at least part of the reason why people are struggling right now. Sure. So some of the claims in the uh, letter made by um, or written by Mr. Baber then are maybe a little premature that uh, we just don't have those numbers, that, that data right now. I don't think so. And I'm, I'm not really sure where that data was coming from. I think it's an interesting um, it's an interesting thought maybe worth exploring. I think perhaps um, a, a dangerous one to put out there, especially when 
so many of us are going through the efforts of the lockdown. Many of us don't want it. Many of us are resistant to it. And yet we're all doing our best to band together when these kinds of messages come out without necessarily being grounded in research that is well done. Uh, it sends confusing messages and it makes people not want to comply to best practices when it comes to public health expectations. Yeah, would the end, do you believe, of the stay-at-home order or the uh, lockdown, uh, would it significantly improve people's mental health, do you think, overall, if just uh, magically, I don't know, starting Monday, this was all lifted? Well, I mean, when we talk about the lockdown, what does that really mean in terms of how different things were, you know, on Wednesday than they were on Thursday for us, um, other than, you know, now the government is telling us really, really stay at home as opposed to just really stay at home. Um, and so I think for most of us, uh, life hasn't changed all that much, but it's just the wording, the severity of the messaging. Um, and it's clear that the government is, is doing uh, whatever it, it knows how to do to encourage people to stay at home. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if the lockdown were lifted, I don't think that that would necessarily significantly change anyone's life at this point. If COVID went away, that would be different. Sure, yeah. And I think that that's the debate here, right, is uh, how do you balance uh, mental health, how people are uh, struggling with a lockdown or a stay-at-home order with overall public health and, as you just mentioned, uh, COVID or the virus itself. Yeah, and I think I think the government, it seems as though the government is, is trying to balance some of that, right? So, for example, for those who live on their own um, or for those who need extra support, it may be acceptable for them to um, visit one other family or family member. Uh, and it, it's clear that they're now taking the toll um, that COVID has had on mental health into consideration. And it's a hard thing to balance what is the bigger risk here, a person's deteriorating mental health or the risk of contracting COVID, but not only for themselves, but the public health emergency that is involved in that as well. Now, what would your advice, Doctor, be to those that are listening to us right now, and they are struggling their mental health? Uh, they're struggling with that uh, during the stay-at-home order or just the lockdown in general. You know, this is a great time to get to know yourself. If you have not been doing that lately, um, we live in such a fast-paced society and environment. So, if if you're feeling up to it, and it can be a, a bit of a scary task, but get to know yourself. Find out what you like and what you don't like. Maybe you thought that. Um, bubble baths were your thing and you realize now that you're actually taking them that they're not enjoyable for you at all. Um, maybe you're, you're learning that you actually don't like to cook, but you really like to bake. When we actually slow down and take a chance to check in with ourselves, we can learn what we like, what we don't like. We can better understand our fears and our anxieties and where, where they come from. Um, so that would be one of the things. I think the other thing is find creative ways to connect with the people that you are able to connect with, whether virtually or in person. You know, some research shows that families, while this has been really hard with kids being at home for school and parents working from home, has also been a really great opportunity for family quality time. And so, you know, take a look at how you're spending your time and maybe maybe try to be creative in how you're connecting with the people in your home as well as the people outside your home. Yeah, and I think that's so important, and it's something we touched touched on on our program yesterday. Instead of looking at this as a punishment or, oh, I can't do this, I, I can't go there, maybe look at this as an opportunity and a, uh, I don't know, rare gift, if you will, that you're, you're right, you're able to slow down a little bit, uh, you're able to spend uh, time with uh, your family that uh, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to give enough time to uh, recently or in the past uh, few years. I mean, it, it really is... 
uh, a lot of this uh, your outlook. Absolutely. And I mean, we live in Toronto, right? How many of us are saving time on our commute every single day now? <laughs> so it's really, how are we using that time? And I mean, not not to to pretend like this isn't hard, but maybe we can decide how we want to invest our time and our energy differently now. You bet. Dr. Taslam, Alani, Virgie, doctor, really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Have a happy and safe weekend. Thanks, you too. And tomorrow in this letter entitled, The Lockdown is More Dangerous Than COVID, that has seen its author, Roman Baber, removed from the PC caucus by the premier earlier today for what Doug Ford called mistruce. Joining us now is Dr. Brett Belchitz. He, of course, is Global News Radio 640 Toronto's medical expert and joins us here on the radio now. Dr. Belchitz, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. All right. Uh, Here is Mr. Baber's claims in his letter when it comes to ICUs in the province. He says claims that there is a lack of capacity based on healthcare rationing and modeling, which is almost always wrong. What is your response to that? Well, I've I've read his statement, and it is full of uh, complete uh, many many inaccuracies and many many things. Which you know, were we to accept this as the way that we make decisions, I think it would be very detrimental to our overall attitudes uh, towards health and and the ethics of healthcare decision making in this province. So, the the first claim that's made is that uh, we don't have any difficulties with ICU capacity, and that this is a fallacy. And in fact, when you look at the numbers. One quarter of the intensive care units in the province are completely full. Uh, another quarter of the intensive care units uh, in the province only have uh, one to two, sometimes three beds available. This is far out of the norm. This is a far higher level of capacity than we're used to seeing. The other thing that's important to note is that there are many hospitals across the province that are sitting up to 50% of their beds are now occupied by COVID patients. So we're already at the brink of a point of crisis. In many ICUs, if you show up in that hospital where the ICU is full, there is no critical care facility there to treat you. And, you know, while there are ICU beds available elsewhere in the province, when you're critically ill, you know, every study that's ever been done has shown that when you have to be transported potentially long distances to receive critical care, that results in a much worse outcome for you. So this is not a a good situation to be in. One of the other statements that was made uh, in his statement was that people who are younger have not accounted for a large percentage of the deaths from COVID in this province and that the vast majority of deaths have been been people aged 80 or over. Uh, And, and, you know, the the, the statement that this is somehow an okay thing because people who are over the age of 80 are dying is certainly, you know, at odds with, I think, most of our attitudes in this province. I, for one, do not think it's acceptable for my patients to die just because they're over 80. Uh, like many people I'm, I, I know of, I have parents. My, my parents are both in their 80s and their 70s. They are healthy. They are well. I certainly would not want to see them pass away uh, to be sacrificed for the economic good in general. So I think, you know, I think most people out there who have, you know, elderly relatives, friends, parents would agree that these are not sacrificial people to be just be given up for, for some other set of values. So uh, I think on many, many levels, uh, the, the sentiments here are certainly not in line with those in the healthcare uh, community and, and certainly not in line with the facts on the ground and the reality that we're facing. Dr. Bell, just wanted to ask you about, uh, I've seen several people uh, cite the fact that the ICU levels are similar to what we saw back in 2018, uh, pre-COVID. I mean, is this situation, while that might be true, this situation is different because COVID is out there right now and uh, we could see uh, the the numbers uh, explode. I mean, we are seeing the numbers explode in this province uh, in Quebec, and that's a game changer when it comes to ICU capacity. 
Well, I, I think whoever is reading those numbers is not quite interpreting them, them properly. Part of the reason why we are not seeing this in the overall numbers is, first of all, they're an average across the entire province. Those don't take into account the fact that some regions are swamped while others are not as swamped. So you are seeing capacity that's helping out in, other er- in certain areas of the province. Now, the other thing that's not being accounted for, and this is really important, is that we've been very judiciously managing our ICU capacity so that those beds don't get filled up with patients uh, in advance of a surge of COVID. So there's a lot of surgeries that are not happening. There are a lot of potentially dangerous procedures that are not happening. All of these things that are happening typically in in medical care are not happening so that we can preserve these beds because we anticipate that they're going to get filled up. So despite all of the the cutting back of regular and routine services, we are still seeing levels of of overall across the province IC utilization that would be typical for this time with all of those other activities going on and with all of the sort of mobility that we normally have that we don't have right now. So when we look at that, the, the big issue here, and this is being shown in the United States where they are really hitting a very critical situation in many parts of the country, particularly in California, is that the spike in usage of ICU and the spike uh, in death rates typically occur several weeks over a spike, uh, after a spike in cases occurs. So if you look at our numbers here in Ontario, we saw the largest spike in cases starting to occur over the last couple of weeks. So we very quickly went from 2,000 cases a day to around 4,000 cases a day. Now, all of those people that got sick at that 4,000 case a day level, there's a certain percentage of them that are going to get very ill and require intensive care unit levels of assistance. Now, those cases, we're not going to see those hitting the ICUs for still another couple of weeks out. So what the situation appears like today is not at all representative of what it's going to be like in a couple of weeks when we start to really take the toll of that. And that's what they've seen in places like California and elsewhere, where everything looked okay, and then you saw very large case numbers coming in, and everything still looked okay. But then several weeks later, as all of those people who were starting to come down with COVID became very sick, all of a sudden the hospitals became overwhelmed. And you know, you're hearing the stories from California where they're actually running out of vital supplies like oxygen now, which is not only important for COVID, but for a whole number of disorders to be treated properly. So sure. again, and this is a critical situation and anybody that doesn't take it critically is ignoring the fact of what we're seeing around the world. I want to ask you about modeling because that's another claim that Mr. Baber makes in his letter that the modeling is almost always wrong. And is the modeling wrong, Dr. Belchetz, or is it just, thankfully, we didn't hit that number? We didn't hit a worst-case scenario, and don't we have to know what that worst case could be and be prepared for it? So, again, this this really betrays a, a lack of understanding of the purpose of modeling and the way that we build models. So, we build out models, and what we say is we say, assuming that a particular illness continues to grow at a certain rate, this is what we can expect to happen. This is how many people will actually get infected. This is how many people will get very sick, and this is how many people will die. This assumes no change in behaviors, no change in infection rate. And, And then what we say is if any of these factors changes, if we can reduce infection rate, if we can reduce mortality rate, et cetera, et cetera, this is what's how the model is going to change. And the purpose of these models is not to say this is a crystal ball and this is the absolute future that's going to come to pass. The purpose of these models is for us to know when to trigger changes in policy to say, we've reached a point where with the current growth in infections and the current mortality rates and the current rates of ICUs, if something doesn't change, we're gonna be in a lot of trouble. So when in the past, those models were wrong and they were wrong in the spring, they're wrong very, very much because of the policy changes that were made in response to those Uh, models being published. So what we're hoping for now is these terrible models that show terrible things happening. What we're hoping for is these are the the wake-up call 
that allow us to actually have the behavioral changes to make sure that those models don't come true. Because when those models don't come true, that's a very, very good thing. That doesn't say the model was a poor model. That says we did all the right things in response to that model to make sure it never became reality. Just finally, I wanted to ask you, there are reports today that uh, doctors as such as yourself and others are conducting, quote unquote, dry runs. These are going on in hospitals right now to decide who down the line in the not too distant future might get critical care as IC, uh, ICUs are being stretched to the limit. So this is definitely uh, happening, and, and uh, you know, let's hope that we never get to the point where we have to make decisions as to who's going to receive care and who won't. But certainly, uh, as we get to the end of our resources, as we get to a point of not having critical care beds, we, we really do have to have some policies and procedures in place to make decisions about where those resources will be allocated. And certainly, this is very similar to battlefield medicine, where you have mass casualty events, and you have to decide where your limited resources are going to be directed to make sure that those people who have the greatest chance of a good outcome are those who survive. Um, that's not something that we ever really use in our day-to-day -day practice of medicine here in a place like Ontario. But certainly, we are going in a direction that if things don't change, we may have to make decisions uh, on this kind of a basis. So yes, we're thinking about it. Let's hope we we never have to use these kinds of decision-making processes. Did you ever think we'd get here or you'd be facing this in your career as a doctor? Well, you know, it's certainly been one of my greatest fears. I think the fear of pandemic is ingrained into all of us that have studied infectious disease. And, you know, we've seen many things that had the potential to be pandemics uh, over the last couple of decades. And fortunately, many of them have not turned out to be the pandemic that we all feared would be the case. But I think looking back in history, I think we all we're aware that this is a possibility and, and certainly you know it's not pleasant to be practicing during these times it's not pleasant to be living during these times um but you know the the hope you know really i would say uh, amongst all of us is that you know we'll make the right decisions and with things like vaccination and better treatments hopefully you know the light is at the end of the tunnel at this point in time you bet doctor appreciate the time as always my pleasure you stay well and take care you as well dr brett belchett 640 toronto's medical expert